All right, you turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll later look at a passage in Hebrews 10 if you want to mark that in your Bible somewhere. And uh, we'll flip to that one later on. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, need, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, we are thankful that we can gather as your people, carrying along this, this story, carrying along this, this tradition of God's people gathering to worship you. Thank you for the, the privilege and the joy and the opportunity that we have to do that through your word this morning, through song, through communion, through prayers and giving of tithes and offerings. God, help us to not go through the motions. Even as we sit and listen, help us to feast on your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and speak, bring life, bring repentance, and bring joy and bring hope. All for the glory of Christ, not the glory of any man or any church or denomination. We ask these things in your name. Amen. There ain't nothing that can't be done by me and God. Ain't nobody come in between me and God. One day we'll live together where the angels trod, me and God. Early in the morning, talking it over, me and God. Late at night, talking it over, me and God. You could say we're like... Two peas in a pod, me and God. He's my father, he's my friend, the beginning and the end. He rules the world with a staff and a rod. We're a team, me and God. I am weak and he is strong, me and God. He forgives me when I'm wrong, me and God. He's the one I lean on when life gets hard, me and God. I heard a special music in a church sung by a young man, and that after it was over, the church just erupted in applause and happiness and joy at that, that song. Maybe it was because the young guy singing the song um, had, you know, took a lot of bravery to get up there and sing that with his guitar. Maybe because it was popular on the radio at the time. Maybe because we, we thought it was a Christian song to some degree. And so, wow, what a cool Christian song. Maybe, maybe we'll start singing that as a church. Um, the problem, though, is there's, there's 
while there's some good things in the song, certainly some truths about God and, 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 and our relationship with God that, that we can affirm, there's some, some big things missing from a song like that by Josh Turner, like the church. Um, and so it's a, it's a gospel light song, right? There's some good truths that can be affirmed, but what's missing is so important that we wouldn't sing a song like that on Sunday morning. So if you're like, you're getting hopeful, hey, maybe we'll sing that. <laughs> No, no, not going to happen. Um, I get the emphasis, like in this age of evangelicalism, on the personal nature of our relationship with the Lord. So, so it is true. When I lay my head on the pillow at night, uh, there is a relationship with God. There's no mediator between Christ, between God and man, but Christ Jesus. So there, there is a personal nature to our relationship with God. True. But, but the pendulum has been swung so far by some today that it's almost as if the church is optional. Or it's not even necessary because all I need is me and God. So one of the aims that we have as the Crossing Church is to rediscover and practice a robust, healthier view of church membership. And that was a desire we had from the very beginning uh, when we started several years ago. To fully grasp what the Bible shows us, what is demonstrated and expected as a Christian who is a member of a local church. And then look at our context and discover what, is, what does that need to look like here? What could it look like here? What, what's the healthiest way this could look in the Bible Belt South as the crossing in Monroe? And so we decided from the very beginning that we would practice this meaningful kind of membership called covenantal membership, where we covenant or we agree together to commit to being these kinds of believers, these kinds of church members that we spelled out in our members' covenant. For our good, for the glory of Christ, because, because we know, we know ourselves. We know our weaknesses, we know our tendencies, we know our flaws and our sins. We know the, the besetting sins that we struggle with, the weights that weigh us down. And we know that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in this body of believers, we are going to fail. We know that to be a body of believers that makes disciples who makes disciples, that experiences gospel transformation for our joy, for the good of our city and the nations that God calls and sends us, we know the only way that's going to happen is not because we're amazing, but because He is amazing. He graciously is choosing to work through His people. And so because of that, we need each other. And so let's Let's commit to this together. Let's pursue this together. So we're spending this year's We Are the Crossing series digging deep into this member's covenant to examine the biblical foundation for this agreement, practically looking at what does this look like in the life of a local church. We have several copies in the back that you can pick up. You can uh, download some off the city if you haven't done that already. And we're asking those who are of one mind and one heart with us who truly desire to join with us in covenantal membership to be intentional about finishing that process before the end of 2017. So that as many as desire to be a covenantal member with the crossing, with each other, will be one going into the new year. And so we, uh, we're offering a new members class on the first Sunday of every month. Uh, uh, the profile, all the instructions are on the city. If you're not sure how to walk through that process, let one of us know. and We'll, we'll be glad to help walk you through that process. But um, we began last week by giving you the biblical and contextual justification for why we would pursue this kind of membership. If you weren't here, you want to listen to that. That's on our, our website or podcast, the biblical evidence for meaningful, intentional membership. Why we feel like this is actually more like Jesus than you might think. Like you say, Jesus never did covenantal membership. Well, look at what Jesus called and expected of his followers. It was so hard at times they quit and they said, this is impossible. And so we doing the same thing as a local church is really more in line with who Jesus was and who he called his followers to be. 
and how he spelled out his expectations and why we think this kind of commitment to each other makes us even more distinct as a local church in a Bible Belt context. There's lots of things that we do to try and make ourselves distinct. We proclaim the gospel and believe Jesus Christ is is the greatest hope for the deepest need in our life. The only hope for the deepest need in our life. So that makes us distinct from some just other organizations and non-Christian organizations that meet and do good work in our city. But we think that covenantal membership makes us even distinct from local churches that maybe have a, a more meaningless membership process where it's just kind of this loose affiliation with each other, not a true commitment to each other. And so that's something we want to pursue. We began last week walking through each part of the covenant. Briefly, while I'll walk through the first two. Let's, let's look at those real quick and then move on to the next one. Number one, we're agreeing, we're covenanting together to submit to the authority of the Scriptures as the final word on all issues of life, faith, and practice. We are a people who build our lives on the Scripture, who live lives flavored by the Scriptures. Why? Because God has chosen to reveal Himself generally through creation, yes, but specifically through the living Word of God and the written Word of God. So the Bible is not a rule book to follow. It's not a roadmap for life. It's not just another man-written book or another sacred writing from a religion. The Bible is the revelation of God. The God who created the heavens and the earth called all things into existence from nothing. It is inerrant and infallible in its original manuscripts. We don't have the original manuscripts that were first written down in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. There's no ancient document from that part of history that we have the original manuscripts. They they wouldn't survive. But what we have is copies and translations of those original manuscripts that are more authentic and reliable and verifiable than any other work of antiquity so that with full confidence we can hold in our hand either a paper copy or a digital copy of the Word of God as He originally revealed it written through men to His people. You can have great confidence that your copy of the Scriptures is the Word of God. Sure, you'll read in the margins and the notes, was this copyist error? Was this really in the originals? Was this not in the originals? Like Mark 16 and John chapter 8 and passages like that. But those are few and far between. The whole of Scripture is authentic, reliable. This is the Word of God. And just like God's people going back thousands of years, we believe through the Scriptures is how we know God. Through the revelation of God through His Word. This is how we love God. This is how we know how to live as God's people. This is how we, we know who God is. And so we teach the Bible. We read the Bible. We meditate on the Bible. We memorize the Bible. We share the Scriptures. We dig into this book and base everything on what God has revealed in this book either specific precepts, laws, commands, or general principles that give us guidance when the Bible doesn't speak clearly. And we, consider, we spend a considerable amount of time teaching this, reading this, singing this when we gather on Sundays, praying this. As missional communities gather throughout the week, God's people living life together in our city. Sometimes your missional community will gather and you'll st- actually study the Bible. Sometimes your missional community will gather and you'll do training and equipping and praying. And so you're not specifically studying the Bible, but you're applying the scriptures to your life as a missional community. So like we don't want to sin as God's people. Well, how do we know what sin is? We look to the scriptures. We want to love and serve our city and love and serve other people. How do we know what that looks like? What are the guidelines for that? We look to the scriptures. 
And then in our, in our DNAs, and, and on Sunday mornings, we heavy Bible, heavy teaching. It's in our songs, in our prayers, missional communities, uh, guided, taught explicitly, are implied through the training and equipping, and the DNAs, where men with men gather, and women with women gather together for intense time in studying the Scriptures together, or walking through a book that teaches us about the Scriptures, or applies the principles of the Scriptures. Or looking at each other's life and saying, here's where I'm struggling with the sin. Okay, how do the scriptures speak to that? How does the gospel speak to that? So that our life is infused with God's word. And right now, little kids in the back are hearing the gospel proclaimed on an age-appropriate level. So like they get a five-minute lesson, they get to play a whole lot, and then they five-minute lesson. I mean, we could do that in here, but it would be kind of rowdy. <laughs> Or our, uh, our student ministry, as we continue to develop in our student ministry, our, our leaders and students will continue to strive on how all of our students can be, have lives flavored by the Scriptures, believing the Scriptures, applying and obeying the Scriptures. Secondly, uh, we covenant, we agree together to seek the Lord Jesus Christ through regular Bible reading, prayer, fellowship with His body, practicing other spiritual disciplines. So we are a people who agree that as individuals, we should have growing, vibrant relationships with Jesus Christ. We grow as individuals, and thus our church grows, and as our church grows, so we grow as individuals. It's two sides of the same coin, which the Me and God song misses. Like, you can't mature and develop spiritually alone. Yeah, yeah, what if I got stranded on a desert island, and it's just me and a volleyball for 10 years, and... And I had all the scriptures I had were over in my heart. Could I grow a mature spirit? Yeah, sure. If you survive, you would definitely grow mature spiritually on your own to some degree. But you would also be hindered spiritually. The gospel is this big story of what God has done throughout all creation. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This 30,000 view that comes down into each of our lives individually so that our individual lives and our relationships with Christ are caught up in this big story so that we are many members of one body. Every member has to do its part, 1 Corinthians 12. So we grow and mature. We use the spiritual gifts God gives us, but we're still part of one body. If a member quits working, like if your foot tomorrow decided to take the day off, the entire body would be hindered, yes. And so this is, this is joint companionship between many members in one body. We grow and mature as individuals, the church grows and matures. As the church grows and matures, we grow as individuals. If we mail it in and decide to quit pursuing Christ as individuals, guess what's going to be hindered? The body of believers. But then God has provided the body to come after you and say, Brother, sister, what's going on? Where are you at? How can we lovingly encourage you to walk with Jesus again? And so this happens in our lives as individuals. When we embrace Christ, when we see that we're a sinner who needs a Savior, and we see that Jesus alone is that Savior. And what happens in us is John described in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, just one of the passages that describe this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the new birth. This is being born again, born from above, literally. And this new birth leads to new life. And it's always been true of God's people that when they receive this new life from God, they begin to live differently. 
They begin to experience a different reality. They see the world differently. They love things differently. They love people differently. They hate things that God hates. They love things that God loves. And, and as we're pursuing the Lord through things that we call spiritual disciplines like prayer and engaging in the Word and memorizing the Word and, and meditating on the Word and, and serving others and having solitude to pull, a, pull back and, and think about our relationship with God, having accountability, using our spiritual gifts in a local church, using our mind to, to, to worship the Lord, worshiping God in creation, worshiping God through song and the arts. As we're employing all of these uh, spiritual disciplines, we are growing and maturing as followers of Christ. And we, you as members of the Crossing Church, are saying, I want that. I want to pursue that. I want other people to help me pursue that. Because I know for the church to grow, I have to grow. And that leads to the third statement. As a member of the crossing, you are covenanting, agreeing to follow the command and example of Jesus by participating in the ordinances prescribed to his church. A, to receive believers' baptism, and B, to regularly remember and celebrate the personal work of Jesus Christ through communion. Members of the crossing agree that a covenantal member of this church should be someone who's received believers' baptism and they regularly share in communion with us. These are what we call the two ordinances of the local church. We believe the only two ordinances prescribed by Scripture. Some groups will add other things they call sacraments. Some will add other ordinances like foot washing. We don't believe that those are explicit and taught by the Scriptures, that we should practice those things. So we carry along in the line of other Protestant reformers the last 500 plus years that the only two ordinances of the church are baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. These ordinances are not salvific, but they are visual representations of spiritual realities that we have experienced and are experiencing. So baptism we see in Romans 6, 1 through 8, come to life in us. What shall we say then? Ought we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of our Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Being submerged in the water, we are showing our identification with Christ. Just as Christ was crucified on the cross, so our old self, our natural self, our fleshy self has been crucified with Christ, buried, dead with Christ. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so when we come out of the water, we're cleansed, washed clean of our sins, and raised to walk in the newness of life, resurrected spiritually to go be a new person, live a new life. So this spiritual reality is pictured in the physical reality of water baptism. Jesus told his followers in the Great Commission, we looked at a few weeks ago, to go into all the nations making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus ascends. His followers are told to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And he tells them in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, When you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter 2 fills the church. They head out. They begin preaching in different languages to different ethnicities who start hearing it in their own language. And, and they call out, as we read in the passage to Peter, what are we going to do about this? We're seeing and believing that, yes, we just killed the Messiah. What are we supposed to do about this, Peter? And Peter says in verse 8, Repent and be baptized in Jesus' name. Be forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 in Acts 2 tells us 3,000 were baptized and added to the church that day. And from that moment forward, baptism became the identifying proclamation to the, word, to the world that you are a follower of Christ. So all through the book of Acts, people who came alive in Christ, what did they do? They were baptized. This is how I tell the world. This is how I show the world the spiritual reality that has happened to me is, is real. That I'm identifying with Christ in every way, in his death, burial, and resurrection. Following in the footsteps of Jesus, who was baptized at the beginning of his ministry. Through the command of Christ to baptize those who become disciples of Jesus to the sermon on the day of Pentecost and the birth of the church. You become a follower of Christ. You announce it to the world through baptism. Specifically, we as Baptists believe this can only be done as a believer. So we practice what's called credo-baptism. Our believer's baptism because baptism, as Romans 6 shows us, is an outward sign of a reality that you've experienced coming alive in Christ that doesn't happen with your first birth, but your second birth, your new birth. So when you're born again, born from above, this is when you come alive in Christ and this is when you declare it to the world through baptism. This differs from what's called paedo-baptism, which is practiced by other denominations for a variety of reasons that we won't spend time on this morning. But suffice to say, we hold to what we believe, what other Baptists and other Protestants have believed, is the best reflection of what is practiced in the Gospels and the New Testament, that baptism is only done in light of repentance and faith in Christ, which is impossible in a newborn. As cute as they are, not going to happen. It's our way of declaring to the world, I'm with Christ. I'm a part of the new covenant. Those who have given, been given new hearts, Jeremiah tells us, who know God and love God. Again, not possible for a newborn. Water baptism is not salvific, so we don't say it's baptismal regeneration like some other denominations like Church of Christ. And so if you're asked, is baptism necessary to become a Christian? We would say no. But we would quickly follow that up with, but... An unbaptized follower of Jesus should be a rare thing. In fact, it's an anomaly in the Scriptures. It just hardly ever happened. Like it's thief on the cross kind of rare. It's got to be extenuating circumstances that make it extremely rare. Once you understand what baptism is about, to refuse baptism would be a very curious decision. Even if you had some kind of hydrophobia, we would work around that. So you don't die when we baptize you. So to be a covenant member of the crossing, there has to be a point in time in which you declare to the world you're identifying with Christ through water baptism. This physical reality, present baptism, has happened in you spiritually. We also think this is best done through immersion because it lines up best with what we see in Scripture. But if you, earlier in life, proclaim to the world that you are a follower of Jesus through believer's baptism and it was by some other mode other than immersion, we would be okay with that as long as it was still believer's baptism. 
We would not ask you to receive a second believer's baptism. But if all you've received is pedo-baptism, even though we're incredibly grateful for your parents bringing you to a local church to have that done, and they grow you up and instruct you in the ways of the Lord, we would ask you to be baptized as a believer for the first time. Not nullifying what was done, because that wasn't believer's baptism, but receiving believer's baptism for the first time. To not ask you to do that would be to cause you to miss out on the blessing of obedience that Jesus experienced, that believers throughout the history of the church have experienced and are experiencing today. To stand before a body of believers and boldly and unashamedly say, Jesus is Lord. He's changed my life. Like sometimes I wish we could just get baptized every Sunday. It's another opportunity to proclaim Jesus is Lord. This has happened inside of me. The logistics would be horrible. But that's, that's the reality that we want to live every single week. Like, yes, this is my life. I've experienced this reality. I want to declare that to as many people as possible. And so maybe that's happened for you. Um, you came alive in Christ. You've not been baptized as a believer. And so it's, it happened years ago. And for a variety of reasons, you haven't yet received believer's baptism. And so it may feel weird and awkward and, and strange to do this so much later in your life. But don't let that be a hindrance. Don't let there be a hindrance to the blessing of obedience and publicly identifying with Christ once again. Most of you know we allow freedom in who baptizes you. Jesus never baptized anybody. Paul makes a point to de-emphasize who does the baptizing in, in 1 Corinthians. So we encourage people who want to be baptized, consider asking someone who is meaningful to you, coming to faith in Christ, to be the person who baptizes you. If you don't have that person or you don't can't think of a particular person that was meaningful to you, then then certainly we'll be glad to fill that role. But it's beautiful to see a parent baptizing their child or a friend baptizing their friend that they help lead to faith in Jesus Christ. And we also ask people who are baptized to share their story. So write it out and read it. Or if you don't want to read it, you want to just share it uh, off the cuff, uh, uh, you can do that as well. But we, we want to hear you in your own words confess the reality of Christ alive in you and see it expressed through water baptism. So covenant members of the crossing are people who have experienced believer's baptism. If you plan to join the crossing, you haven't experienced that, let's talk. It's part of your membership profile, your interview with our elders to share that experience. It's something to be celebrated and shared. So we love to video it and share it on social media. We even did a Facebook live baptism once. Baptism is kind of this entry experience into the Christian life. We believe that members of local churches are people who have been regenerated, born again. And so because of that, they're people who have experienced this believer's baptism and declare to the world their faith in Christ. Communion, on the other hand, is a kind of ongoing experience and reality of continued life in Christ by sharing in a meal that looks back and looks forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The origins of the communion meal or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, began with the institution of the Passover meal back in Exodus 12, around 13 to 1500 B.C. A meal in which a spotless lamb without blemish would be sacrificed and eaten along with unleavened bread. The blood of the lamb would be smeared on the doorposts of the Jewish homes in Egypt so that they could avoid the wrath of God through the final plague upon the Egyptians, the death of the firstborn. So that their faith or trust was in the, the blood of the innocent one who was covering their home. And they were literally under the blood. So that death judgment would pass over them. And that's what they were believing. Believing God's word that if you do this, cover your home in the blood of the innocent one, you will be spared the judgment and wrath of God. 
And you can imagine what that must have been like for those Jewish families on that night in Egypt. As you've done everything that God has said to do, and now you just wait. You hear the weeping and the wailing throughout the land. Your faith and trust is in the blood of the innocent one that's been spread over your home according to the word of God. You wake up in the morning, your child is still alive. And God's word has proven true. And life has come to this home. And this is where this meal started. They would continue to eat this meal year after year, remembering that night for 1,500 years, being reminded each year of God's deliverance from his own judgment and wrath through killing and and the blood of a sinless, spotless, substitutionary sacrifice. And then Jesus comes along, and John the Baptist, the cousin of Christ, the forerunner of Christ, says about him in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, the lambs that we've been killing for thousands of years to cover over our sins. Now here comes a person who is a lamb who's come to take away the sins of the world. And three years later, he's sitting with his closest followers in this Passover meal, the night that he would be arrested. And during this very traditional meal, he interjects new meaning in Luke 22. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup has been poured out for you, for you is the new covenant in my blood. And these closest followers of Jesus who would see him in a few hours arrested and tried illegally, beaten, crucified, killed, and buried, and then on the third day rise bodily, physically from the dead, they would wait 10 more days, uh, or rather for the next 40 days, Jesus would teach them about the kingdom of heaven. He would ascend into heaven. They'd wait 10 more days. The Holy Spirit would come. The church would be born. And this new assembly of God's people would in part be marked as a people according to Acts 2, 42, and 46, people who break bread together. This is not a reference to eating meals with each other because in verse 46 of Acts 2, it says they broke bread and shared food. This is a reference to communion, sharing in the Lord's Supper, breaking bread, the body of Christ, which was broken for them. And it's more explicit in 1 Corinthians 11, a passage we'll look at later in communion. Sharing in this meal became part of identifying behaviors of the early church. In fact, someone uh, who was outside the community of faith in the second century called Christians cannibals because they heard about them eating this meal that was flesh and blood. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And they, they thought these people were eating people. They would do this as often as they gathered on the Lord's Day. Some believe even more often, maybe as often as they shared meals together. And so we decided when we planted the Crossing Church, uh, when we gather on the Lord's Day, we would do the same every single week, sharing this ancient meal together. And at times, it's even been done in our missional communities, in our homes. It's a meal intended to visualize so many realities. It's intended to show us the gospel. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in the broken, unleavened bread, we see a picture of his sinless, spotless life. The bread is unleavened, or sometimes it's unleavened. You never know until you show up. So if it's not unleavened, just pretend like it's unleavened. But in the unleavened bread, we see leaven, which sometimes represents sin in Scripture. Not all the time, but sometimes represents sin in Scripture. We see the sinless, spotless life of Christ. And then in the fruit of the vine, whether it's alcoholic or not, it's intended to represent the shed blood of Christ. 
The reality, in fact, that without which the shedding of blood, there would be no remission of sins. Ephesians 1.7 tells us. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, they attempted to cover their sin and their shame with fig leaves. And the Lord, before He banished them from the garden, sacrificed an innocent animal and made them clothes to cover their shame and their nakedness. And so from that point forward, you see the substitutionary sacrifice of one shedding their blood to cover the sins of another. And this, of course, was best seen in the Passover, which pointed forward to Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross. God is holy. Sin is rebellion. So from Genesis 2 forward, God said, if you sin, you will die. The essence of sin is being cut off, being separated from Him. And so in this equation, from Genesis 3 forward, sin equals death. Because God is holy, sin is this barrier between Him. A barrier that can't be crossed unless there would be one who would take our place, receive the punishment we deserve for our sin, and allow us to go free to have access to a holy God because we get credit for their innocence, get credit for their righteousness, pay the price for us, be cut off for us. They take the penalty for us. We can be received because of that into fellowship with God. So God instituted this sacrificial system in the Mosaic law that would allow his people to shed and sacrifice the blood of innocent animals in their place to atone, literally cover over their sins so that when God sees their sins, he sees their sins covered in the blood of the innocent one. This substitutionary sacrifice. And God gave them very detailed and specific instructions on how exactly to do this and when and who leads and what kind of animals. And God's people would carry these sacrifices out year after year for hundreds of years, sacrificing thousands upon thousands of animals because they kept sinning. And they needed more animals to be killed in their place. Like, I don't know how many of you hunt and fish or how many of you have hunted and fished, but how many of you... Uh, but, but, but all of us have, have bought meat in a grocery store for your family or we've been to a farm where we, we see this concept of animals being bred and raised to provide food for us. We get this concept of animals being killed for their meat to consume them and provide sustenance like we've been doing that as people for a long time. But have you ever killed an animal or had an animal killed because you sinned? How strange would that be? Like you need that animal. You sin, punish that animal on my behalf. Slaughter that animal. Like it's horrific to even imagine us doing that today. Once a year, your family brings an animal to this place of worship in a culture that doesn't have a grocery store that's magically restocked every night. So it's not like they just have endless supplies of food and pantries and freezers full of food. They take a perfectly fine animal, in fact, a spotless, a blemish-free animal, and they bring it to this place of worship, and they hand it to this priest-slash-pastor-type person and says, me and my family have sinned. Kill this animal instead of killing us. Shed its blood instead of shedding my blood. Because it's what I deserve. Whether it was a lamb or a bull or a pigeon or a turtle dove, depending on what you could afford, This happens week after week, year after year. We deserve to be cut off from God. We deserve death because of our sins. But kill this innocent animal in my place so that I can continue to live and be in relationship with God and God's people. Like Just try to imagine what that must have been like. 
this very tangible, visual, olfactory, auditory sound of animals being slaughtered by the hundreds and thousands. Why? Because of sin. Like it, it wouldn't escape your mind. It wouldn't escape your memory. You would, even as a young child, get this visual reminder of the price of sin, the cost of sin. And this went on generation after generation for hundreds of years, thousands and thousands of animals. We think of the temple as this golden and beautiful place, but it was bloody. Is barbaric in some ways. The smell of blood, the sounds of animals being slaughtered. And this continued and continued and continued until one day, here comes the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And He took the place. No more animal sacrifices. He took the place for our sins. He embraced this bloody, barbaric sacrifice of himself because we sinned. And we fell short of the glory of God. The sacrifice to which all these sacrifices were pointing, the sacrifice which actually paid the bill so that there would be no more sacrifices. The final, full sacrifice of God for our sins. See this in Hebrews 10. If you want to turn there or it'll be on the screen. Hebrews 10. Beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. The law cannot save. It's only a shadow of the ultimate reality that was to come, which is about to be explained. Otherwise, would they have not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Done. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. There was no chair in the Holy of Holies because the priest never stopped working and offering sacrifices. But when Christ offered himself, he sat down. It's done. It's finished. No more price to be paid. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His people, us. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And then it goes into the passage we began our worship gathering with. Because of that, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in communion, we are not continuing to sacrifice Jesus. That was a one-time, once-and-for-all payment for all the sins of God's people for all time. Jesus said, it is finished, no more. But when we eat this meal, we are reminded using all of our senses. Each week, the price that was paid for our sins. So that in this meal, we see the broken, perfect body of Christ. The sinless body was broken for us and his shed blood on our behalf. And we're reminded when we come to this table, this sacrifice by Christ was willingly done by him, lovingly done by him but also necessarily done by Him. He had to die. Just like the Jewish people had to bring the sacrificial offerings to atone for their sins year after year because of their sins, so Christ had to die because of the sins of His people. Which is why we have this time of reflection before we partake of this meal, to once again be reminded that we are sinners that made the sacrifice of Jesus necessary. And so let's, let's have a soberness to this meal, a somberness to this meal. We would go so far as to say that if you have continual, ongoing, unrepentant sin in your life that you are not fighting against, but you are embracing and indulging and trying to hide from people, We would ask you not to share in this meal until the Holy Spirit reveals to you your sins and helps you see the wickedness of that sin and the reality that sins like that necessitated this sacrifice. And to openly embrace sin in your life and to share in this meal is actually not a good thing. Believers in the church in Corinth were dying and getting sick because of that kind of sin. But if you're sinful, we would also say, see in this meal the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus and see the price has been paid. You don't have to wallow in sin. 
You don't have to pay a price or pay penance. Like it's not that you have to sit there long enough until you feel bad enough and then come and receive the elements of communion. Like you can see your sinfulness and see the beauty of Jesus and come running down here to get the bread and the fruit of the vine. It's not like a certain amount of time you have to sit there. I see my sin. I see Jesus is beautiful. I want to go remember that in joy. Or, or it may take longer for some. There's no, there's no time limit on that. Just reflect on the somberness of our sins and the, the joy, the beauty of Jesus. So that each week when we partake of this meal, we remember the life and the death of Jesus. We remember we are forgiven We are forgiven. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are made new. We are wiped clean of all of our sins. This is our standing all the time. It's not like you do things, you're good enough, and you read your Bible enough, you come to church enough, oh, now you're forgiven. You're forgiven if you're in Christ. You're forgiven right now. You are a forgiven people. And so we come with joy and eat this meal. Look what we look who we are. Look at what he's done for us. Look at what we get to celebrate. So there is a somberness and there is an incredible joy. An incredible joy because of who he is and what he's done for us. It's a somber joy. It's kind of like when Frodo wakes up at the end of Return of the King. Lord of the Rings. The ring's been destroyed, the work's been accomplished, the evil's been vanquished, yet Frodo still feels pain over what he's experienced. He feels pain over the price that has been paid. It was hard. It took a long time to read all those books and watch all those movies. Hard work. But then all of a sudden come busting in the room, Sam and Mary and Pippin and Aragorn. Gets me every time. And they're jumping up and down the bed and going crazy because it's over. It's over. Nothing else has to be done. Every week we're confronted with the reality that we are amazingly sinful. But don't be so beaten down by that that you can't be equally confronted with the reality that you are amazingly forgiven. And that's your standing before your Father in heaven all the time. All the time. All the time. And so it's a somber celebration of this full, final, total forgiveness that Jesus had to and willingly, lovingly purchase for us. And we celebrate our new status that he's made possible. We celebrate that we don't have to keep paying penance. We don't have to keep choosing to suffer for our sins. We don't have to keep beating ourselves up or try and prove to God how sorry we are. We don't have to keep wallowing in self-pity and shame. We don't have to keep carrying the weight of guilt. We don't have to hide in fear. This meal proclaims to us each and every week, Jesus paid it all. All to him I can now freely give. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he has washed us white as snow. We are clean in the eyes of God. If you are a sinner this morning, somberly acknowledge that sin, yes, but turn from that sin and celebrate with joy what Jesus has done To bring you home. This table is where you belong if you're a sinner. This meal, this feast, 
And as, he, as Jesus pointed out in Luke 22, this is pointing to an even greater feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will feast and dine forever, celebrating the Lamb of God who took away our sins. So we exist as church members who are proclaimed to the world this new life in Christ through baptism, and we continually proclaim to the world this continued life in Christ through communion. And each week we are cut by the Word, cut by the Spirit about our sinfulness, and then we are overwhelmingly healed with joy by the balm of Christ and His gospel. We do not exist as a church to give you a better life. That's why you want to be a part of the crossing, because it's a better life for you. I will tell you right now, we are going to continually let you down. Because some weeks we're going to do things that make your life better. And some weeks we're going to do things that don't make your life better. And you're just going to lump the church in with every restaurant, TV show, doctor's visit, class you attend, professor you have, interaction you have with friends in church. So, so like all of your life is just going to kind of be this consumeristic mentality where you're judging and evaluating. That made my life better. I want to do that again. Made my life worse. I don't know if I want to do that again. The church does not exist to give you a better life. The church exists to declare to you life. Life. If we really see ourselves as dead in our sins, the message of the church of Jesus Christ is life in Christ. I deserve death and I have life in Christ. And these people gather weekly to remind me of that, to help me experience that, to help me when I struggle with that, to encourage me when I'm down with that. And yeah, it's going to be a mixture of good and bad. But those are the only people in the world who are going to keep proclaiming to me life in Christ. And keep sharing with me life in Christ. And so good, bad, ugly, all the mess that it is, let's go together. Because we are the only body that God's created to do this in our world. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. That His grace is sufficient. That His mercies are new every morning. Father, we are so grateful. You have demonstrated Your love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So we do want you to expose to us our sins. We do not want to live a life shrugging our shoulder at sins. But then we want you to overwhelm us with the good news of Jesus. And let us enjoy it. Taste it and see it and smell it and let it transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.